I'm going to assume, if you're like anyone else, that you've witnessed a lot of serious violence in your lifetime. Well, at least on screen. Violence is more prevalent than ever before on TV and film, as it is, of course, in real life. What does that mean for us as a society? How about our youth? That time when most of us were first exposed to these depictions of violence. You're now going to hear a group of young participants retell from memory one of the most violent film scenes they have ever watched and choose if they would play victim, perpetrator, or bystander in the scene, and why. These young people are participants of a film and violence project called Direct Approach, which was initiated by the Danish artist Steen Marie Jacobsen in 2012, and has since traveled to many places around the world as a contemporary anti-violence method. I'll explain to you how the method works after you've heard the participants' cinematic witness reports. During their retellings, there may be some graphic language, but keep in mind that the violence has been altered by their memories. And, as far as spoiler alerts, well, you won't know if they're spoiling the film, because the speakers haven't watched the original film scene again, so there's no guarantee that the scenes will be the same as the original film. Unraveling the memory of a film scene is like unraveling a scene from real life. A film scene recalled from memory invariably consists of different aspects, including the participant's own worldview and their personal identification with the characters involved. So, while all characters appearing in this work are fictitious, any resemblance to real persons, living or dead, is no longer coincidental. Memory is filtered through subjective interpretation, and intrinsically we experience everything alone. It is in the space of solitude that repression can happen. Memory is construction. We collect information from what happened at an event, attempting to remember, based on our knowledge and expectations of the world, as well as our emotional starting point, among other factors. This construction can, if you have a little imagination, transform our recollection into a rather foggy picture. But if you remember new details, you can get more pictures until, put together, they seem like a little movie. It's as if you're imagining something. For example, envision yourself standing on your head in Times Square, which I don't suppose you've done, although I'm sure you're familiar with Times Square. And if you wish, you can construct an action where you jump around on your head between the cars. This is not a stored movie. It is a construction that you've made here and now, based on a lot of details. My name is Elijah Guo. I'm a writer, actor, and producer, and I've collaborated on this podcast as a scriptwriter. I personally think this podcast is important because it's a unique platform for examining how we relate to violence by asking participants to recount a film scene, pick a fictional character, explain their choice, and engage in discourse and reflection on temporary violence. This is clearly a relevant issue in society today, and has been for some time. My name is Tina Marie Jacobson. I'm an artist and educator. I made this project in order to have a platform for sharing our different experiences and understandings of violence without having to share 
our private stories. It is my hope that by listening to each other and these interviews, with an open mind that we can come to a deeper understanding of our own dark sides and how different our sensitivities to violence can be. I encourage you to try the method for yourself. You will now hear a series of interviews where I ask young people specific questions. After the interviews, these questions will be explained in detail and with guidelines. All the direct approach participants are asked the same questions to help them recollect a film scene memory. I'm Jane, I'm 20 years old, and I go to Pratt Institute. Um, I'm from Manhattan. Jane, thank you so much for joining me in the studio and for participating in direct approach. Jane, tell me about um, one of the most violent film scenes that you've ever seen. The most violent film scene I've seen um, was in 13 Reasons Why. And it's during um, the last episode in the first season and the main character commits suicide. And it shows in graphic detail um, the moment of her committing suicide. How long ago did you watch the film? I watched the first season, um, I think, in freshman year of college, and then I watched the second season over the summer. This summer. Oh, so and how many episodes are there? There's thirteen in each season. Um, can you tell? Can you describe the film scene to someone who can't see it? What? How does it start and how does it end? Um. So the whole series focuses on characters that have wronged the main character named Hannah. Um, so it discusses that she has committed suicide and this is why. These are the 13 people that have wronged her. This is the reason why she committed suicide. Um, so basically it's in the final episode and it finally gets that point where um, it's this, that actual scene. Um And so I think there's so much graphic detail um, that I don't want to share. Uh, so I guess like it, it takes place in the bathroom and she's in the bathtub. Um, but besides that, I think it's so unnecessary to show um, moments that are so personal and violent and graphic that um, there's no reason for me to reshare that. So you would prefer that I don't ask you about how she uh, commits suicide, yeah. actually? Yeah. Okay. But can you tell me a bit more about how does she get there? And, like, so what happens before the violent moment and after the scene ends? So before the violent moment, directly before, um, she has a regular day, as far as I remember, Um And she interacts with her best friend, Clay, and they're both kind of in love with each other. Um, but neither of them really talk about it. Um, and he is one of the last people on these tapes that she's blaming um, because he she basically blames him for not picking up on her being sad and not being like, I love you, like I want to be with you, or um, just not speaking up. Um, so... Basically, it's just they both work at a movie theater together and they spend the day working together um, and then she goes home. Um, 
and I think her mom is in home at that point. Um, yeah, and so then she goes into the bathroom, and she does. So, yeah. And um, how does she blame him? What does she tell him? Can you remember any sentences being said? Um, well, a lot of the, like, awe factor in the series is that you don't know, like, Clay gets the tapes. Everyone who is one of her reasons gets this group of tapes, Um And basically in each of the recordings, she targets one person and like why they wronged her specifically. Um, so you're wondering when Clay's tape is going to come up because they were good friends. And you're like, I don't think and he can't even think of why she would be angry with him and why she would blame him. Um, so finally, I think in the last episode, she's like, this tape is for Clay. Um And so that's really surprising because I think making it like one of the last tapes, like she's directing a lot of blame towards someone who had no control of what happened to her. Not that any of the characters did, but there's a big range in how violent they were towards her. And being a bystander and just being someone who interacts with someone has nothing to do with what's going on with them. You can't affect um, what people, I mean are left with or what their choices are in that moment. Um, yeah, even if you are violent towards them, suicide is a really personal experience um, and is really connected to mental illness. And it's clear that in this, in this series that this is a girl with mental illness. Like, yes, she has been assaulted. She's been triggered. There are so many factors, but she, from the earlier episodes prior to that even she's withdrawing from life like she is alone so um and throughout the season they never mention mental illness we're gonna get yeah, much more into <laughs> yeah. no no it's perfect it's perfect but i'm gonna ask you much yeah. more about that um for the beginning of our interview yeah. i i want to stay a little bit more with little, the scene uh, yeah um so you're saying that she's meeting Clay and where is she meeting him? And do you remember anything that she's saying, like like from the the film? Um, and so where are they meeting and, and what is she saying to well, Clay? Well, she doesn't meet him. He just like receives her tapes. Or you mean in Bef that, or before? Yeah, yeah. before oh. the scene. You well, said she, they were hanging out Yeah, somewhere. they worked together at a movie theater. So they spent like a normal day at work. Um, yeah, serving popcorn and stuff like that. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Any details are really um, yeah. important. Um, and you're saying she has a normal day. What does that mean to her character? I forgot her name. What's Hannah. That? Hannah. Yeah, so oh. she goes to class, um, I think, and then she, like, works at the movie theater and serves customers and, um, yeah, interacts with her friend, Clay. Uh, yeah. And how do we see her? Like, is she happy as that, or how is she? I mean, I think that um, a lot of her character is putting on this, like, facade to other, uh, towards other people. Um, and so she seems, like, happy or joking and, like, charismatic. But, like, in actuality, like, you can catch her in certain moments in the film where she's, like, very introspective and upset. Um, so even though she puts out like this happy, like, I don't care about that much kind of attitude, she's actually like struggling with depression or she's depressed. Yeah. Do you remember how that is shown in the film? Well, I think it's like, she'll like flirt with Clay or like joke with him. Um, but they never talk about things that are serious. Um, 
or maybe she'll say some like really weird deep comments um but as far as like talking about herself personally she really never does that throughout the um their moments together mm. and um do you remember any details of the bathroom like is what color is the bathroom are there any is there any light in the bathroom are there any details shampoo soap or stuff oh. like that <laughs> um i think the bathroom's white um she's in the bathtub i don't remember if she has clothes on or not um but yeah i just remember her being really pale um and all the focus is really on her um there's no one else in the scene so can i ask you a little bit more into that so yeah. you don't feel like describing the moment of of suicide of yeah. how you don't want to actually depict that yeah. verbally yeah because it sensationalizes mm -hmm. suicide um and i think even with my own mental health i think that's really triggering um just like if i listen to people talking about that um and i think that it's just we don't need to like for example like news stories when they like go into detail about a famous actor's death um or suicide um we don't need that information it only makes us um yeah i don't think we need to visualize it it's something really sad <laughs> I, i completely hear yeah. you on that and i actually agree so I, yeah. i'm happy that you're taking this yeah. stance yeah um How do you think it sensationalizes suicide? I think it sensationalizes suicide um, by depicting someone that's beautiful, um, white, um, and funny um, as the character who commits suicide. It kind of, uh, it shows like a beauty in it. I think also like depicting that moment on film and like, so vividly showing the colors um, creates something that does look beautiful. Um, and I think that's really problematic because it's something that's overly personal, um, is sensationalizing it. It's romanticizing mental illness um, by showing a pretty white girl who's depressed, which they won't even say in the film. Like, they're romanticizing sadness because it goes so deeply into her sadness um, without actually criticizing the sadness and that people don't need to live every day with that kind of sadness um, and that there are so many options, but they don't show us the options. They only show you what's cool about the, like, you know, obviously in quotes, manic pixie dream girl type of thing. Um, so I think it's disgusting um, because... Mental illness isn't fun. Like, it's not pretty. It's gross. Like, when you haven't showered for da for days or whatever because you can't get out of bed, it's not pretty. Like, <laughs> uh, it doesn't look like her. I mean, maybe it does. Maybe you do shower when you're even when you feel awful. Um, but it doesn't have to look like her. And she's not even an appropriate character to show what mental illness is and what depression looks like um, because it can be in all forms and people act differently and interact with um, their mental illness differently. And a lot of people go to therapy um, and a lot of people get help and ask for help. Um, and I think that's really important to stress because 
when something looks so uh, romantic on TV and you want to help her and you feel bad for her and you, and she's so she's so much about revenge. Um, it's it pulls you in, I think, and that's obviously the purpose of the TV show, but that's not how it is in real life. Can you talk a little bit more about the revenge? Like, what what is that, and how do yeah. you think that the film is using that? And yeah, so basically, the fact that she's blaming her suicide on thirteen different people is really problematic because when someone commits suicide, it's um, one fact said that it's like ninety percent of people are struggling with the diagnosable mental illness, and another said like forty six percent. So either way, and through what she's shown in the film, like she is most likely struggling with the mental illness. So. At that point, that has nothing to do with other people. Yes, people can cause trauma and they need to be held accountable for those actions. But no, did it? No one can cause you um, to hurt yourself because um, that's a really personal act. And with the right amount of help, stuff like that can be prevented. Um, so basically, she makes these tapes for thirteen people. Um, a, like letting them know what they did and the 12 other people also get to listen to those tapes so they're all informed about what these people who go to their school did to her and some of them like assaulting her that that's a high level of trauma um and that's not okay um but there's such a range of people that are um that she wants to take revenge on um, from just her friend who didn't notice what's going on with her to someone who rapes people, um, that it doesn't actually rightly address any of the issues. They're not addressing mental illness. They're not addressing sexual assault because it almost equates these things that have nothing to do with each other. Um, and especially showing it through a light that like is revenge. Um, so making mentally ill people look revengeful which uh, a lot of them are a lot of us are regular people that yeah um mm. so i really think that it um it goes about um talking about mental illness in the wrong way and talking about suicide in the wrong way um because yeah it yeah <laughs> could you say a little bit more about how the film does not show her or how is she depicted as a person in the film as a character i mean i think she's pretty like not three-dimensional like she's i don't know pretty flat as a character um it goes between her like either talking to her friend clay or people in life and just being like charming or quiet um and then it's her alone and her being sad um so I don't think real people are actually like that. Um, there's not enough to her as a person. Um, and I think that it is hard to do it correctly, but um, she, yeah, I don't know. She just, yeah, it's just inaccurate because she's so vengeful. And, um, yeah. She, so you just said there, you don't think there's a way of doing it correctly. Um, yeah. Can you explain that a little bit more? Um, 
I think that it's hard to accurately and properly depict mental illness. Um, but I think it's possible. Um, I think there's better there's better ways to do it and people that um, take it on from a standpoint that's like, let's promote therapy, let's promote services, um, let's promote that um, it may be a lifelong situation that you have to deal with on a daily basis, but it's possible to make it through the day um, and be strong. Um, and I'm not saying she's not strong. She is, a, like, she's a strong person, and she's unfortunate. It's just unfortunate. Um, so, yeah, putting the value on therapy is the way to do it the right way and not showing graphic scenes of self-harm because no one needs to see that. So if you should now tell the producers of, of 13 Reasons Why, what yeah. should they have done differently? Or what should they do differently? Because the film is still out there, right? Yeah, I think the problem is with um, the book that started it as well. I read the book when I was 12 years old. Um, and at that point, it was really popular among my generation, at least, or people in my age range. Um, and that's also problematic because you're targeting an at-risk population. Um, or even I was almost prior to that because um, I was 11 or 12, pretty young. Um, and it throughout the book, I don't remember it addressing mental illness at all. Um, and it it's very intense and very graphic also. Um, and just the fact that she's blaming people is the problem um, and that... Like, at no point does it mention therapy when you're—and now the series is also targeting teenagers, um, also an at-risk population or young people. Um, and that's, like, after puberty, sometimes that's a main age range when mental illness does set in. Um, so there's no reason to have something like that. Um, there's no reason for it to exist. It's just that I think it would have been better. There's books like uh, It's Kind of a Funny Story, um, and the author basically addresses uh, mental illness and suicide, but the main character gets help, goes to therapy, and it's about their time um, in psychiatric care. Um, but, you know, they are doing better towards the end of the book, and he's like, you know... Um, properly medicated um, and stuff like that that's so important and just stressing the importance of therapy um, in order to rehabilitate um, yeah and be functional so as far as I understood the film is basically showing that we have Hannah the main yeah. character who's at school who blames 13 people for her yeah. reasons why she yeah killed herself yeah And is there a no point, no scenes where she's asking for help or she's offered help? or? Yeah, there's one scene where she asks for help. Um, basically, she goes into her guidance counselor, and I think either she says she's been assaulted or she's considering suicide. Either way, it's like the gravity of her what she's talking about is intense uh, and really big. Um, so, and basically the... Um, The mental health professional or social worker at the school just doesn't really do anything. Like, he lets her go home. And so I think as far as my, like, me being in school in public high school, um, 
schools have a responsibility and mental health professionals to report certain kinds of claims um, or like certain gravity of claims. Like if you say you're suicidal, um, if you have a plan. Um, but if you go into a, a teacher or a social worker and you say that, which hopefully you get the help, they are legally bound to like make sure you get home safely or go to a hospital. I think by law you have to go to a hospital. So like legally what happened with her literally can't happen. So we already, there are, there's prevention. There's stuff that hopefully you do speak out like she did, which is great. Um, and you do get the help you need because you're, that's what people, you, people want you to be okay. Um, and I think that's important to hear because um, it's good to reach out. And she reached out. So uh, she would have gotten the help she needed because she spoke to the right people. Um, yeah. So I think when writing it, I don't know the laws in other places, but I know to a certain extent you are provided with the help you need um, or at least connection to services or a hospital. There's one question that I have to ask you. I don't feel like yeah. asking you, but it's part of the method, you know, oh, and yeah. you can totally react to it as you want. Um, yeah. But imagine that we would refilm this film. Yeah. Um, who would you uh, play? Who would you identify with? I think um, the film forces you to be the bystander. Um, so in almost just listening to the tapes, even if you um, were one of the reasons... Um, you're still forced to listen to the tape, even about yourself. So again, you're being the bystander, even if you were the perpetrator and did hurt her, which you should be held accountable for again. Um, so I think that everyone has to be the bystander. You have to be the bystander in that specific scene because you're the viewers alone with her. Um, and then in every other episode, you're listening to the tapes as the characters do, so you're just the bystander again. If it's a bystander within the film, if we say that there's a victim, perpetrator, and bystander within the film, I'm going to expand yeah. the scene to the whole film. Yeah. Who who would you play within the film? Uh, which of the characters would you play? Um, I don't know. It wouldn't happen. <laughs> the ones that you've described... Um, Briefly, you mentioned uh, her friend, her... I mean, I think the closest thing to the bystander is her best friend because he's watching everything as well. So, um, And he's done no harm also to her, even if she does blame him. Um, yeah, so I, I guess I'd be her friend. But I think in reality, um, people do get help and do ask for help. So stuff like this is preventable. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and could you describe one more sentence like why would you play him um i don't know he <laughs> um he's nice and caring not that i'm saying i'm nice and caring but i think that um yeah he just has the he's most similar to a bystander because he has no control over the situation and that's the most um besides having a community effort um to prevent suicide, um, people are bystanders when something like that happens. Yeah, yeah. I hear that. Yeah. <laughs> I know that. Yeah. Um, so imagining that this scene is real, 
Yeah. And and happens. I and mean, how 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 would you have acted in that situation if you had been in that scene? How would you change the film scene? Um, the film scene just wouldn't have happened if I was directing the film or the whole series wouldn't have happened it probably just would have been a how to reach out and get help or the possible services um yeah so if you could would you actually ask them to remove like to cancel the whole scene yeah to delete it to cancel the whole show yeah because the premise of the show is problematic and doesn't prevent uh doesn't promote people getting the help they need Is it still ongoing? Yeah, it's on Netflix. Like, it, it's always online. So that means everyone who has a Netflix account has access to it constantly. So you would actually, would you, would you, rec- like, let's say the, the makers, the directors of 13 yeah. Reasons Why are listening to this. What would you tell them? I would tell them, um, isn't it like Selena Gomez, like, supported it or something? I don't know. But anyway, I would just... I would tell them that they they messed up, they did it wrong, and um, hopefully they can remove the show because it's not promoting anything healthy, um, and that instead they put their money into resources that can actually help people rather than sensationalizing mental illness and suicide. Yeah. And how can we, meaning schools families, friends, how can we help people in this situation? Let's say we have a Hannah in our lives. Yeah, I think that um, there's a lot of options. Um, as far as the school system, uh, Thrive NYC was putting um, through Sherlane Mc- McRae, I think, yeah, right, um, was putting more social workers in public school systems, but it's still not enough, um, even though it's nice. Um, but You can't have schools of way more, like, thousands of people and have them get the help they need unless you build it into the system. Um, And I think that means having teachers take mental health seminars and actually be more educated about the topic so um, they can be approachable, um, I think, and understand if a kid is talking about... um, I couldn't do my homework because I was panicking or I or if you're just noticing that a student missed like 30 days of school. Um, it's about having systems, even with big schools, to know who the at risk population is, um, even when it's really hard. Hopefully enough education um, will promote um, people getting the help they need. And I think. Can I talk about certain places that yeah. are helpful? Yes, please. Um, so I used to volunteer with National Alliance on Mental Illness. Um, and, yeah, so they're nationwide. Um, but they have a helpline, and basically you can call, and someone will, uh, if you're not in a crisis situation, um, otherwise you'd be referred um, to, like, a lifeline or 911. But... Um, if you're looking for like educational support with mental uh, mental health um, or a therapist in your area or um, a clinic um, or even support groups, they have support groups, they can walk you through different services you can connect with to get that. Um, on site, they have support groups, but 
outside of that, um, they give you referrals and different numbers because um, they're there to help people um, and they want to change the statistics. Um, and yeah, so and it's run by people who also have mental illness um, or are family members of people with mental illness. Um, so they really care and they're part of the community and they really want to help. Um, and it's not that hard. It's pretty easy um, to call them. Uh, even if everything else is hard at the moment, um, taking that step is really makes a difference in your own life or the life of your child or family friend. Um, but yeah. Why do you think we have such a hard time asking for help? Um, because society has a lot of stigma around mental illness, around just being sad. Um, we're pushed to be really productive every day. And you can be productive and have mental illness. But um, I think it's this culture of not talking about what's actually going on. Um, and I think it's really important to ask people how they are. Um, just being like, how are you? Because um, it shows you care and especially like as a parent or a friend, um, that's really important because it makes a difference. Um, and it makes people comfortable with you because um, you want people to reach out. Um, yeah. I have one more last question. Can you, I, I feel like you're also speaking to a listener once in a while who could have these feelings that we're yeah. talking about. Is there one more thing that we, we would like to say to that listener who might be feeling not so well? And is there something that we, for example, have been speaking about, which was maybe wasn't yeah. so good or something you want to tell them? Like, I, I think um, as someone who's been there and is there sometimes still um, because it's a lifelong uh, process of working with mental illness, um, that... Uh, just find that one person you know that you can reach out to. Obviously, someone who's capable of helping you. Um, it's okay if it's just a friend and they can call their parent or your parent or will take you in to a teacher who can um, help you and call, like, a hotline. Um, you can always just call a hotline, too, if you're struggling. Um, you don't have to necessarily be in crisis at that moment. Um but there's, there's a lot of free services out there, um, and it's possible to feel better throughout the day. Um, so I, I think it's just it's really important to take that step of, like, asking for therapy, even though obviously it's a process. Um, it'll really change um, how well you... Um, interact with people and function so I think it's a lot about being functional um and it's you can actually feel okay throughout the day like that's the goal I think um even if it takes a while to get there yeah should I can I run through more services because I like wrote yes them down please yeah I forgot to say some please. um so, yeah, so if you're not in a crisis at the moment, you can call National Alliance on Mental Illness. There's one for almost every state, I'm pretty sure. Um, there's the Suicide Prevention Lifeline if you are in a crisis. Um, oh, NYC Wells is the one that also 
is really helpful. I think they have an app now, too, that you can text. Um, and then as far as clinics, there's Callan Lord, which helps adult LGBT people struggling with mental illness, among other things. They can pair you with a psychiatrist and a therapist. Um, and so... Yeah. Also, yeah, it's a lot of information I have. No, no, bring it <laughs> um, on. Bring it on. Yeah, we can always cut it. But um, yeah, a lot of these places do have waiting lists. But if you go during their walk-in hours, it's great. Um, and they will set you up as soon as possible. Um, and then the Trevor Project is amazing. Uh, they mostly deal with LGBT uh, teens and adolescents. Um and they have a hotline. Um, it originally started uh, directed towards, like, trans people and, like, a trans population. Um, but it's really actually for everyone around that age range. Um, and they're really helpful. Um, and also work is a crisis hotline. Um, and then there's The Door, which offers a lot of different services. They have therapy. Um, they have just, like, general support and nice people to talk to there. So that's I think just in New York City, um, but it's also a good option to look into. Yeah, so those are my favorite. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, and then Ali Fournay, of course. Mostly thinking of the queer ones, but um, yeah, they also offer housing. So there's also a whole way to get mental health housing. Um, but there are a lot of options there. Even if there are waiting lists, it's just about taking that first step um, and asking for help. Jane, thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else that we should add um, to the... Did you... Like, was there anything else you had prepared to say? I guess... Well, I did. I mean, there's the stuff about censorship, but... Um, what else? I guess going... Just going back to... Um, the blame, again, isn't on Hannah. Um, it's... A, a systemic issue that people aren't getting the help they need. Yes, she, um, it's mostly revenge-based, but it's not her fault either. It's a system that keeps failing people. So um, it's how we talk about mental illness. It's how we talk about being upset. It's how we talk about having a hard time. Um, so no one um, is to blame in that situation, not her. Um, so, yeah, it's just about getting help, but yeah. <laughs> I think what people are afraid of, or that's just a guess, yeah. is this moment of it's that um, it's been tabooized because it's yeah. so hard to talk about because I yeah. think people are afraid of talking about it in the wrong way. Yeah. How do we go about that talking to someone who maybe wants to commit suicide? Or we have we feel it, but we don't know how to deal with that. Um, how do we talk about it if we can't show it? If you're not a mental health professional, it's not the responsibility of a single person. So I think it's more just taking the person you know who is having a hard time, going to an adult, or even if you're an adult, going to someone um, in some kind of comfortable place that is also an authority. Um, and whether it's in that, if it's a crisis, you go to, the, um, you call 911 and you go to the hospital. Um, if you're not, directly in a crisis and you're not worried about that moment with that person then you can either suggest it to one of their friends their parents um yeah it's not the responsibility of a single person it takes everyone um just talking about it whether it's at dinner just talking about it almost casually even 
though it is serious. It's just so we talk about it more so we understand how to get help. Um, yeah. And if you are worried about someone, uh, hopefully you can ask them directly, but it's not the single person's responsibility. It's, um, it's connecting them with therapy and you can call services to ask what you should do. Um, and yeah, just, yeah, it depends, but yeah, I think it's about people who are trained. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think this was a really good interview. <laughs> good. I don't have any more questions, okay. um, but we're definitely going to take all these links that you mentioned into the uh, episode cool. because yeah. people might not know them. Yeah, there's um, there's a lot of options. Yeah. Yeah. When we did the first interview, like we prepared yeah. to this interview, you yes. also said you wanted to make a disclaimer for Netflix because oh. you mentioned to me that before you watched the scene, there was no warning. You yeah. literally did not yeah, know. Yeah, you have no idea. Yeah. yeah, can you just mention yeah. mention that? I mean, now they do have trigger warnings on certain stuff or stuff is rated um, as more serious. I think in front of the newer seasons there are like a there's a disclaimer but in general um i think it's important to have trigger warnings on stuff um because it's about people's well-beings so if you're going to include something graphic which hopefully you can depict another way but i'm not about to censor any kind of art um you would write um like this includes x y and z um yeah just like a general trigger warning. Um, yeah, I would just say it includes self-harm. It includes uh, suicide, uh, mental illness. Uh, yeah, and especially, obviously, the parts that show sexual assault, um, to put that to there too, because it's not worth, whether it's triggering someone for the night or for longer, it's not worth it. Uh, it's a show. Like, you don't have that. You're not allowed to take on that much responsive, uh, control. Yeah. But there's a lot of control. You take on a lot of control by putting out such a graphic scene. Um, and you should be ready to be responsible for it by showing um, the services that people can um, go to when they are in need. But if you're not going to do that, then... I just don't understand what the point is. <laughs> I sincerely hope that the th 13 reason wa reasons why producers are going to hear this. Yeah. All the speakers were asked the same questions to help them recollect their film scenes from memory. Here are the questions, along with some guidelines on how to properly utilize them. One, what is the most violent film scene that you've ever watched? Two, tell me more. This may include more detailed questions, such as, how does the scene begin and end? What time of day did the scene take place? In what sort of setting did it take place? What did the perpetrator, victim, and bystander look like? How did the perpetrator, victim, and bystander move? What were they wearing? How did they look, including age, hair, eye color, etc.? What do you remember about sound effects and soundtrack? Do you remember any specific words spoken in the scene? What other details do you remember? What happened next? This last follow-up is particularly useful, because even if, as an interviewer, you think that the whole film scene has been described in ample detail, such questions may prompt the participant to remember more about the scene. By asking them what happened next, they may believe that something else happened. 
Three, if you had to play the victim, perpetrator, or bystander, which role would you choose? Four, why? The participant's insertion into and interaction with their film scene is a crucial part of the direct approach practice because it allows them to engage with their memory of this act of violence in a proactive and perhaps reformative manner. It may allow them to find the inner truth, meaning, or relevance of the scene to their own life. Five, would you act the same way if you were in that situation? This may include more detailed questions, such as, when and with whom did you watch the film scene? What made you watch the whole film scene? Would you watch it again? In what way are you violent as a person? Can you say something positive about violence? Most people answer that they are not violent in any way, but the project invites them to reflect on this. Also, to say something positive about violence is to define when you think it is okay to use violence. This is a very important question for all of us to consider and discuss the answer to. Six, does the violence depicted reflect society today? If yes, how? If no, why not? This question is an effective way to expand their interaction with the scene into a broader worldview. However, they will arrive at this point most effectively only after having first delved into their personal relationship to the scene via the previous questions. Some guidelines for when you set up the interview are to make sure the participants do not try to depict with 100% accuracy the film scene that the interview is about, simply in order to give a better interview. Remind the speakers that the conversation is public. It can be very personal to talk about violent experiences and opinions, and participants can very easily share private stories. This project offers the film scene as a protective shield. The interviewers should never interrupt the participants. Be a patient and accepting listener. Turn the focus away from your own ego in order to concentrate your attention on the participants and their stories. Never interrupt or finish their sentence. Ask neutral questions in order not to affect their memory. For instance, instead of asking, is the car blue? Ask, what color was the car? I hope listening to this experience has been illuminating for you as you consider the role of violence in the media and society. And now, of course, I want to know, what scene would you choose? If you want to book a direct approach workshop, please email contact at direct-approach.org. Direct Approach is supported by the Danish Arts Foundation.